0: This is Stacey Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines.
1: Wisconsin voters came out in record numbers for Tuesday's primary election, leading to the largest voter turnout since the primary election 40 years. For a primary election in 40 years, excuse me, reports the Associated Press. Almost 26 percent of registered voters made it out to the polls on Tuesday, numbers not seen since the 1982 primary election, which saw just under 27 percent voter turnout. With over 690,000 votes being cast for Republicans and over 5,000 votes being cast for Democrats, Tuesday's election may foretell near record high voter turnout in the general election on November 8th.
0: And speaking of election season, Adam Steen, the primary opponent of Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, announced today that he is still not conceding the election. In a post on the conservative social media platform Truth Social, Steen said that he will wait for the official results before officially conceding the race. Steen points to his tight loss in the election as his reasoning. Voss won his district by just 260 votes on Tuesday night. Steen also pointed to his endorsement by former President Donald Trump, which provided last minute momentum to his campaign. The last day the State Elections Commission is able to certify Tuesday's election is August 24th.
1: The state legislature took legal action today to stop local clerks from curing absentee ballots. Ballot curing, where clerks are able to fill in missing information on absentee ballots, was issued as an official guidance by the State Election Commission in 2016. Today, the legislature filed a motion to intervene in a lawsuit regarding the practice, asking a judge to immediately block all ballot curing. After a state rules committee instructed the election committee to either get rid of the ballot curing guidance or implement it as an emergency rule, the commission opted for the second option last year. But last month, the rules committee struck down the emergency rule. The Capitol Times reports that the striking down of the emergency rule did not overrule the 2016 guidance, but did pave the way for a group of Waukesha County voters to bring a lawsuit against the Elections Commission to get rid of the practice once and for all.
0: The Village of Oregon announced late last year that they would be getting their very first Culver's. And while the restaurant will not open for another few months, some residents are already waiting in line. Well, sort of. After a miniature Culver's replica was placed at the site of the future full-sized restaurant, hundreds of toy cars began to appear waiting in line in anticipation of the restaurant. As of today, about 300 miniature toy cars are in line, including several big names such as Barbie, G.I. Joe, and the Mystery Machine. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that even Culver's owner, Craig Culver's, is waiting for the new store, adding his own toy car to the line. Construction is expected to begin on the full-size Culver's next month, with the burger joint opening about six months after that.
1: The playground at the Henry Valley Zoo has been closed until further notice due to a protected species of bird making its nest in the structure. WKOW reports that barn swallows just recently started a family in the tree-like structure and the playground must be closed until the, until the chicks are old enough to fly on their own, a process known as fledging. Barn-swallowed chicks take about three weeks to fledge, at which point in time the playground will reopen. If you are planning to take the little ones to the zoo this weekend, don't worry, the zoo does have another playground for the kids to play on.
0: And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 1,953 new confirmed COVID cases across Wisconsin yesterday, with the state seeing an average of 1,587 new cases each day over the past week. Additionally, 17.1% of all or no, I'm sorry, 14.1% of all COVID tests have been positive over the past week. There was one new confirmed death from the virus in Wisconsin yesterday, and here in Dane County, there were 157 new confirmed COVID cases yesterday, and 76 people currently remain hospitalized from the virus. And now on to today's top stories.
1: Confirmed cases of monkeypox have been on the rise in Wisconsin. For more on the virus and what it means for Dane County, we turn to reporter Emily Kasinger.
2: The Biden administration declared monkeypox a public health emergency last week, reflecting a growing concern about rising case counts of the virus. As of noon today, there have been a total of 10,392 confirmed monkeypox cases in the U.S. Here in Wisconsin, we have 32 confirmed cases, with six of those in Dane County. Monkeypox has been on the rise with the first instance in Wisconsin reported on July 1st and case counts slowly but surely climbing since. So what is monkeypox? I pose that question to Dr. Ajay Sethi, professor of Population Health Sciences at UW. Here's his answer.
3: So monkeypox uh, is a virus. Uh, it's a virus that's closely related to smallpox, which you know we haven't seen in the world uh, for a long time. It's a virus that is spread by uh, skin-to-skin contact, especially when that contact prolonged. It's it's not the most infectious virus, but it can spread certainly between people when one person has infection, perhaps not even knowing it, and and they give that to another person. Uh, the telltale symptom of monkeypox is a rash, and that rash is like a blister. Uh, from that blister, you get a lot of shedding of virus. And so that's when you ha- if you have skin to skin contact, that, that virus can go from one person to the other, causing infection in, in, uh, in another person and spreading uh, as such.
2: Vaccines are available. Public Health of Madison and Dane County opened a vaccination clinic on August 1st and has administered about 200 vaccinations in the two weeks it has been open. Vaccinations are appointment only as supply is limited. For more on public health efforts to address monkeypox, I spoke with Morgan Finke, spokesperson for Public Health Madison in Dane County. She says vaccinations are the key to containing the spread.
4: I think vaccine is a big part of it. Um, so, the smallpox vaccines do work on monkeypox. So, if someone has a, a confirmed high risk exposure, the smallpox vaccine can be given within four days to help prevent disease. Um, and it, it can be given as far as 14 days f- from exposure and still be effective. Um, but we consider it to be the sooner the better in terms of getting that vaccine to that individual.
2: If you live in Dane County and are eligible for a vaccine, you can call 608 608- to schedule a vaccination appointment. Vaccinations have been limited. Wisconsin has about 6,000 allocated doses of the vaccine and Dane County is administering 150 a week. In order to maximize supply, the state health department has announced they will make an alternative method available, a shot that uses one fifth of the vaccine, but administers it between the layers of the skin rather than deeper into the muscle. Dr. Sethi stresses that this is safe.
3: So there is a shortage in supply of vaccine and you want to keep up with the spread of this virus so that more people can benefit from the vaccine that exists. And there is precedence for lowering the dose of vaccines and altering uh, the route of administration. So it's not uh, a wild idea. There's, it's actually grounded in some proof of concept from the past.
2: When in doubt, both Dr. Sethi and Ms. Finke suggested talking with your primary care doctor. Vaccinations can be given after developing symptoms, and a doctor can prescribe antivirals or pain medication to help with symptoms of the virus. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Emily Kaysinger.
0: Wisconsin is one of several Midwestern states to rank high in child well-being in a recently released report, and this year's summary highlights mental health challenges. Now, those concerns have been found in Wisconsin, especially for marginalized families. Mike Moen from the Wisconsin News Connection has more.
5: An annual summary ranks Wisconsin 10th in the nation for child well-being. But like many other parts of the country, mental health is a growing concern. The Annie E. Casey Foundation is out with its latest Kids Count data book. Wisconsin is in the top 10 for areas such as education and economic stability. But analysts say there are glaring disparities, including mental health. For example, 26 percent of black children were reported to have anxiety or depression compared with 15 percent of white children. Michelle Mackey of the statewide group Kids Forward says it's clear all the stress from the past two years is greatly affecting marginalized families.
4: You know, we're seeing across the board the impact that the past couple of years with the pandemic and, you know, the economic crises hitting families as well as the racial reckoning and what that's done in communities of color really have taking a toll on children.
5: She says policymakers can help by making stronger investments in social determinants of health. One suggestion is an increase in the earned income tax credit. The report's authors say it's shown to be effective in reducing childhood poverty along with behavioral health issues. However, it's unclear if such a plan could overcome political gridlock in Madison. The report also suggests more dedicated funding in propping up mental health treatment in schools, noting that's the location where most kids access that kind of care. The Casey Foundation's Leslie Bossier says it's important to not lose any momentum that has taken hold in helping kids thrive.
2: It's incredibly important that decision makers seize the opportunity and the lessons learned during the COVID-19 period when more resources were provided to families so that we can make sure that every child has their basic needs met, that fewer children live in poverty, and that the overall well-being of children in this country increases.
5: Health is a category where Wisconsin ranked lower, coming in at number 15 overall, It saw a slight increase in the number of children and teens who are overweight or obese. There was also an uptick in babies with a low birth weight. Mike Mowen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org.
1: The time is now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
0: Today's election saw a tight race between Republican candidates for governor Tim Michaels and Rebecca Clayfish. Now some see the deciding factor in that race is that Clayfish did not perform as well as expected in three key counties in southeastern Wisconsin. The Wow counties, that's Waukesha, Ozaki, and Washington counties, had heavily voted for Scott Walker in the past. But Michael's unexpected surge in these three counties can point to a larger shift in Republican politics in Wisconsin. WORT producer Nate Weggehout spoke with Barry Burden, professor of political science at UW-Madison, about why the Wow counties are so important for Republicans running for office.
6: So let's just start things off here, Barry. The Wow counties, that's Waukesha, Ozaukee, and Washington counties. Uh, What are these three counties in regards to the Wisconsin political landscape?
7: Well, they really become the base of the Republican Party in the state. Those three counties represent suburbs and exurbs and some rural communities that ring around the northwest side of Milwaukee and have been delivering pretty consistently lots of votes for Republican candidates. They matter a lot in primaries, of course, on the Republican side, but in general elections, they help Republican candidates remain competitive in statewide elections when they are outvoted in places like Dane County and Milwaukee County.
6: So these are the real heavy uh, Republican uh, bases in this state over here. I want to ask, sort of getting into the history of this, when did did these counties uh, sort of begin to be such a stronghold for Republicans here in Wisconsin?
7: You know, I think the story probably begins just after World War II when the interstate highway system was built and residents of Milwaukee who were unhappy with urban life or schools or crime or other concerns began moving out to the suburbs, the so-called white flight. That really spawned development in Waukesha in particular, which was just down the interstate to the west of the city. And so you got new subdivisions developing there, uh, single family homes with new roads and new schools, new infrastructure. And it was really attractive to middle-class and upper-class families, um, and they have only grown since then, that left the city of Milwaukee to be less white and less wealthy, and it has really exacerbated the racial divisions between the city and the outlying areas, but also the economic inequalities. Um, But it didn't mean that those counties were immediately delivering votes for Republicans. It took some time for the parties to sort themselves out along racial and economic lines, Uh, just the way it did in Dane County, which was not always delivering votes for Democrats, believe it or not. And that took some time to develop. But uh, over the succeeding decades, but especially accelerating in the 80s and 90s, those well counties really became a hotbed of support for mainstream uh, establishment Republican candidates Uh, looking to mine votes. That was the place to go.
6: And so, staying in historical context for just a second here, looking a little bit more recent, uh, these areas were all heavily Scott Walker areas as well, correct? Uh, Tell me a little bit about that.
7: Yeah, Scott Walker really, I I think, redefined the map in elections in Wisconsin to some degree. He did exceptionally well in pulling votes from those communities outside of Milwaukee. Of course, he was based there. He used to be Milwaukee County executive He was in the state legislature. He grew up in southeast Wisconsin, so that was a natural home for him. And his running mate, Rebecca Clayfish, also from that part of the state. And both of them really appealed to more educated, middle-to-upper-class white voters with conservative values. Um, That, together with the rural vote in the rest of the state and some smaller communities and parts of the Fox River Valley, Brown County, those kinds of places, uh, proved to be a really reliable and successful coalition for Walker. Uh, Donald Trump built on that. Uh, he didn't. Trump did not do as well in the Wow counties. He suffered there to some degree, but had just enough to win the state. Ron Johnson has also done quite well in those counties. So it's, it's not really essential, I think, for a Republican who's going to win statewide, that they need to replicate a good part of the Walker coalition, and that certainly starts with the well counties.
6: And now that sort of brings me to my sort of next point here on Tuesday, Rebecca Clayfish actually did win two of these counties here, but still ended up losing in the entire state. So were people sort of expecting her to sweep these uh, three counties here? And did Michael sort of surprise people with just how many votes he ended up getting in the three counties?
7: Yeah, that was exactly the story on election night. Uh, Clayfish was the establishment candidate. I mentioned before she was lieutenant governor from that part of the state, had done very well as an establishment candidate winning those wow counties. That's, that's where kind of regular traditional Republicans do well. So she needed to win by large margins there because she was going to lose most of the other counties in the state to Tim Michaels. That, that is the pattern in Republican primaries in Wisconsin. Uh, If you go back to, say, the 2016 presidential primary in Wisconsin, it was a battle between Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. Cruz, somewhat more the establishment candidate, member of the U.S. Senate, endorsed by Scott Walker, did well in southeast Wisconsin, winning the Wow counties. Trump did well elsewhere in the state. That's been the divide. Uh, Clayfish was not able to pull that off. She didn't win all three of those Wow counties, only two of the three. And the ones she did win, like Waukesha, were by small margins. And that was a different pattern than, say, what had happened four years before in the last midterm Republican primary, where Leah Vukmir, who was the eventual, eventual winner in the primary, became the Republican nominee in the general, uh, was winning Waukesha by, I think, 37 points. Uh, Clayfish had a narrow majority there, and so uh, she was easily swamped by Michael's rolling up larger victories in small counties around the state.
6: And so you mentioned there uh, Clayfish was sort of expected to not do as well in sort of the rest of Wisconsin. What makes the What's sort of the difference between uh, Waukesha, Ozaki and Washington counties between uh, other uh, heavily Republican counties here in Wisconsin? What makes what makes them special for in this sort of context?
7: Yeah, there really are a couple of different brands of Republican voter in the state. There are the Wow County types, um, who exist beyond the Wow Counties, but are so predominant there. We sort of think of that as being uh, you know, the archetype of where they exist. These are suburban, middle class, mostly middle-aged, more educated, higher income, economically mobile voters, ec- economically conservative and somewhat socially conservative, but really supportive of traditional Republican positions on things like the size of government and and taxes and those kinds of things. That contrasts with Republicans in rural counties, especially in the north and west part of the state, which has become real Trump country. Those small communities are not growing, are not economically uh, upwardly mobile, tend to be older, uh, less educated, Somewhat stagnant incomes and uh, just a different orientation towards the economy, more conservative on social issues um, and have really become, you know, part of the Trump element within the party. They're really attracted to his message and that style of governing. So they went heavily for Michaels. uh, They went heavily for Trump in 2016. They went heavily for Kevin Nicholson when he ran, ran against Leah Vukmir four years ago. So there is this kind of division, and maybe it's a battle even within the Republican Party between those suburban counties and the rest of the state. Uh, it, it falls away a little bit in the general election where both of those places tend to be reliably Republican and Democrats have to go for votes elsewhere.
6: Now, Barry, this is kind of a big question here, but what does it mean for the state of Republican politics here in Wisconsin that the Walker-endorsed candidate uh, lost to the Trump-endorsed candidate in these three Wow counties here? What what does that sort of
7: mean? Well, I think it's a real shift in the image of the Republican Party. Uh, Scott Walker was the Republican Party in Wisconsin. He led the state for eight years defeated a recall attempt against him, pushed through a really impressive amount of legislation during his time in office working with the Republican legislature, everything from taxes to environmental regulations, voter ID requirements, gun legislation, uh, uh, you name it. Uh, they, They were successful, and he only lost the 2018 election by a small margin in a year that was a pretty bad one for his party. The Democrats swept all five of the statewide offices that year. Uh, but it looks like Republican voters are willing to walk away from that. He was very active supporting Rebecca Clayfish, endorsed her campaign with her in the final days. She was part of his administration. Uh, she was backed by all of the legislative leaders in the state, Speaker Voss and others uh, who were also tightly connected to Scott Walker. But it just wasn't enough in the end with Trump endorsing Michaels on the other side. there There seems to be a real appetite for non-establishment candidates, non-traditional candidates, people who come from outside of elective office who don't have experience in government. And and Michael's represented that, and the Trump endorsement uh, really sealed the deal.
6: Well, Barry, we're sort of running up against the clock here. Do you just have any final thoughts of anything on this that you'd like to share with me here?
7: Well, I think those wow suburbs are something to watch in the general election uh, this year and in 2024, I mentioned that Trump suffered a little bit in the Wow counties compared to other Republicans, certainly in the primary when he was running for president the first time, but also in the general election in both 2016 and 2020. Uh, Ron Johnson and other Republicans have done better there. So I would expect Johnson to clean up in those suburbs and uh, Michaels this fall. But going into 2024, especially if Trump is on the ballot again or a candidate like him, it will be interesting to see whether there's a little bit less enthusiasm for that style of Republican. And um, and that gives Democrats a, a more of an opening to win statewide than they would have otherwise.
6: I've been talking with Barry Burden, professor of political science over at UW-Madison. Uh, we've been talking about the importance of the three Wow counties in southeastern Wisconsin in Republican elections. Barry, thank you so much again for coming on and talking with me here today.
7: Hey, glad to be with you.
1: Time is now 633 and you're listening to the local news on W.O.R.T. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Every other week, we bring you an excerpt from Out of the Box podcast, where host D. Starr speaks with people impacted by incarceration. On this week's edition, we hear D. in conversation with Cheryl Knox, former probation and parole officer for 33 years. She tells us about her upbringing and why she chose to get into corrections.
8: What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with Cheryl Knox. How are you doing, Cheryl? I'm doing well. For the people that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
4: Yes, I was working for the Department of Corrections for about 33 years. I'm a retired probation officer. Been retired, I would say, about a good seven years. So where are you from? Are you originally from Madison? Nope, but originally from Wisconsin. Born and raised here, lived here all my life. Why did
8: you want to get into this type of work?
4: Coming up, my brother and I, you know, one of the things we did a lot was we liked to play detective games. So I originally desired to be in law enforcement. But at the time when I was coming up, there was a height requirement. I'm, yeah, I'm five feet even. I wasn't going to make it. Right. (laughs) So I applied to the Department of Corrections, got hired as a sergeant, worked at Oak Hill Correctional Institution. And then I went on to work at the Wisconsin Resource Center. And I was a lieutenant there for a while and eventually moved from that into probation and parole.
8: So what was the best thing about being a parole officer?
4: Well, I've always liked helping people working in the institution. There's only so much you can do. There's only so many resources that you can offer in the institution. It's a lot easier to help someone because you have more resources available to you in the community. And so that was just like the perfect transition to be able to work with people in the community. Oh, okay.
8: So what tools did you have slash resources at your disposal to help people?
4: We had finances. We could provide clients with a certain amount of financial assistance coming out of the institution but in addition to that, we also knew community resources. We knew people in the community that had apartment buildings. We had halfway houses as an option. We would also connect with the family and try to pull together those resources because a lot of times when a person is incarcerated, they don't really have as much open communication with family members. So we're able to do some of that footwork to try and help facilitate the transition and make sure that the house is going to be a welcoming environment, that there are going to be resources coming from the family and that the family understands the person's situation coming out and is willing to give that assistance as well.
8: So what resources do you feel like that you could have used to further help the inmate community?
4: Well, certainly, you know, coming out to houses of sobriety, because one of the things is that if a person comes out with alcohol and drug issues, your old crowd is waiting for you. Misery loves company, you know, and they're going to pull you right back into those same behaviors, making sure that people are able to transition in a really deliberate and planful way Um, coming out of the institution, more resources um, in terms of uh, halfway houses, and just also independent apartments. Not everyone is uh, made for a roommate. Yes, exactly. You know, I mean, when you think about the fact that you, you know, depending upon the amount of time that you've been incarcerated, the last thing you want to do is come out to an environment that is not your own. You know, you want to be able to begin to live independently, Cook for yourself and feel like a whole person again. You know, so having apartments and things like that that we could transition clients to, those kind of things would probably be one of the things that we could definitely have used more of.
8: How would you describe the parole probation agent's role?
4: We are advocates, we are helpers, we are there to help pave the way to be out in front to show them the way to be role models and to just mainly be their advocate in every situation.
8: What do you feel like is the disconnect because a lot of people see the probation or parole officer as someone that's like a more of a disciplinarian versus someone that's actually there to help them and give them resources.
4: I think the first thing that we have to deal with is that we are an extension of the institution. Right. Which means that you still have to come under authority. We're we're not there to try to govern or run your life, but we do have to give you direction. Because we are there to keep you out of harm's way. And, you know, it's just like with our children, you know, we can we can tell them not to touch that light socket, right. you know, but curiosity, you know. And it's the same thing as as we become adults and even more so, you know, as adults, you might feel like you you know more and you want to chance it, you know and and when you come out from under those hard, fast rules as individual agents, we don't make the rules. These rules are best practices that have been time tested, you know and so they've they've looked at what are the things that tend to get um, to get clients in trouble, you know and they've come up with a set of rules that tend to really make it so that a person is more likely To achieve success if you adhere to those rules. But if you see those rules as that hammer over your head, you're not going to use them and you're going to resist them. But unfortunately, when you get out from under them, then there are consequences that have to go along with that. When you
8: first started working as an agent, what surprised you about the probation and parole system?
4: I would say the intrusiveness in homes. As a young person growing up, I had never been um, involved in the criminal justice system, nor my family members, which the majority, I would say, of African-American families at some point have had people that were involved in the criminal justice system, but never from like the probation and parole side. You know, so the going into people's homes, doing home searches, home visits, and things like that, that was surprising for me. So I always tried to be like, Extremely respectful because I thought about, you know, how would I feel to have this extended into my actual home and have my family affected by an agent coming through and questioning me in my home? And, you know, if there's a situation where there actually has to be a home search or an arrest that occurs in the home, those are terrifying to the children and to other family members watch that happening. Those were things that surprised me because I thought that those things were only the responsibility of law enforcement officers like, you know, police officers and so forth. Probation and parole officers actually make the arrest themselves? Yes, usually with the assistance of law enforcement, but if if we come into the home and there is a violation that is a mandatory custody situation, Yes, the agent will take the client into custody there in their home.
8: Okay, so what can you do to make a good first impression when you first meet your agent so you guys can get off on the right foot?
4: Being truthful, open, being communicative, being open to talking, you know, with your agent. Answer the questions that they have to ask you. These are mandatory things that they need to know. And just basically putting any negativity away so that you can open the door to a welcoming relationship right from the very outset you want to let them know that you're willing to do everything that you need to do to work with them and by the same token they're going to be letting you know that you know they're there to work for you as well
0: in 2020 wort producer nate weggiehout got hooked on a new hobby one that cast him out into nature while staying covid safe that's fishing Enter fishy business, our newest feature, where Nate talks with fishing expert Pat Hasberg about the DNS bait shop. Now on today's inaugural edition, Pat and Nate talk about what's biting in Madison and how to catch the many fish that live in the Madison area.
6: All right, I am on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, how's the fishing been lately?
9: Fishing around town's been great. We've got a great uh, perch bite on Lake Mendota, a great bluegill bite on Lake Monona, and walleyes and smallmouth are snapping around town, muskies. Everything's been great.
6: All right, so Pat, I I do a lot of fishing, but I got to be honest, I don't. end up catching a lot of fish i actually i was out uh, this morning uh trying to catch some fish and it's out there for uh, about half an hour just before i came into wart here and i'll be honest i caught nothing i didn't get a single bite so let's look at some water around here in dane county to sort of find out where these fish are and how we can catch them so let's just sort of go down the list and start off with uh lake mendota what's been going on over there
9: on Lake Mendota, there's a great perch bite right now. Uh, a lot of those fish are being found on the outside weed lines. So, uh, a lot of that weed weed line begins about 10 feet of water, 15 feet of water. And uh, the perch are stacked up along that weed line and then out to 20 and 22 feet. I've even heard reports of fish in 25 feet of water out there. But uh, real strong uh, populations of perch right now, a couple different year classes, and uh, Things are looking bright for the future for the perch population out there.
6: And year classes, can you just sort of explain to me a little bit what, what that means for the perch?
9: Sure. It's just, uh, you know, there was uh, some perch that were hatched uh, three years ago that are, you know, maybe 12 inches by now. A real nice size perch sketch there. And then another year class that's a little smaller in that 7 and 8 inch range. And then uh, some 4 and 5 inch fish uh, too. So what that means is that we've had a few good years of some really great hatches of perch and it uh, bodes well for the future for perch fishing on Lake Mendota.
6: Happy perch, happy fishermen. That's that's uh, what I say. So <laughs> looking looking at those perch, what's the what are they biting on? What's the best way to get them right now?
9: Well, traditionally, uh, Helgramite is the most popular bait for perch, but for whatever reason this year, the Helgramite population has been Knocked back, and all the folks that uh, catch those and and sell them to bait shops have not found any. So, what uh, fishermen have resorted to is uh, redworms have been a popular bait, and then also uh, little grubs like a waxworm or a spike have also been real effective for those fish.
6: All right, then moving on to Lake Monona just across the way there. What's been going on over there?
9: Lake Monona is a bluegill factory. It has been as long as I can remember, and this year is no different. They're finding fish in shallow water, but also out to um, about 15, 20 feet of water. And then those fish, this time of year in the summertime, they suspend out over deep water. So they hang out in what's called the thermocline, where the warm water turns to cold water and that's where they're most comfortable. Those fish can be caught drifting out over the deep water and folks just hang a line over the side of the boat and if it's not too windy you can just comfortably drift along and come upon fish uh, and it's just a great way to pick those fish up and some really good size has been coming out of Lake Minota. It's typically in years past been a smaller uh, size fish coming out of there but this year I've been hearing about uh, fish up to 10 inches pretty regular.
6: That's a that's pretty good size for a uh, bluegill, and when I oh, usually yeah. when I usually go for them, I'll usually just go for half a nightcrawler, uh, just thrown out there. Is that is that sort of the best way to go for them?
9: Half a nightcrawler is great. Um, a little redworm's is great. Uh, little spike or a waxworm, those little grubs I was mentioning before for the perch work great. Even just a little uh, plastic uh, lure on a nice fishing jig has been really effective. So if if you can. Get get your lure down at the right temperature uh, or the right depth, you're going to find fish uh, all over the lake in that 15 to 20 feet of water depth.
6: And so when I think of bluegill, I always think of uh, summer, just like the hot weather. And then I also think of ice fishing with the cold weather. Is that sort of is that sort of true for bluegill is sort of the extreme warm weather sort of good for them or not extreme warm weather, but, you know, the, the late summer weather that we're feeling here?
9: Yeah, it's. I mean, bluegill bite year round, uh, but you know, this time of year, like I said, they they move out into that deeper water, trying to just find the comfortable temperature for them, and uh, that's where you can find them d- drifting out o- over any deep water, fifteen to twenty feet down, seems to work. But you know, winter time they move tend to move in shallower, uh, and springtime generally. Year-round, they hang out in shallower water, but this time of year, that shallow water gets a little too warm for them, so they like to move out where they can feel comfortable, so they hang out over the deep
6: water. All right, and now let's look at one last lake here in the area, and let's go with Lake Wabisa uh, over there. What's been going on over there?
9: Uh, Lake Wabisa continues to be a great mixed bag lake. Uh, People are catching bluegill and perch on the weed lines, and in that same 15 to 20 feet of water depth but also there's a great walleye bite out there so in the areas uh, around hog island which is near lake farm park they've been jigging in some deeper water 20 to 30 feet of water they've been getting walleye jigging out there and then also trolling around babcock park which is down there in mcfarland has been uh, effective for the walleye and the musky bite on lake wabisa has been really picked up in the last few weeks um so that's that's been a uh, uh, Really exciting thing because it started off slow this year and people were wondering where all the muskies went, but uh turns out they were just a little late to start like like the rest of the spring we've had so far.
6: And here's a, just a little tip for you. If you think that you're going to be going out where there's some muskie, make sure that you bring some leaders with you. I went out a, a couple of weeks ago on the Yahara River, uh, not thinking that I would be hitting so many muskies, but then I hit so many muskies and lost uh, pretty much every lure I brought with me that day. Uh, so, all right, Pat, so we're up against the clock. Do you have any final fishing advice that uh, you want the people out there to know for this week?
9: Um, You know, just get out there and and give it a shot. You're not going to catch them sitting at home. And we've got a fantastic fishery here in Madison and a lot of great opportunities. So I just encourage people to get out and give it a shot.
6: I've been talking with Pat over at D&S Bait Shop here in Madison. You can hear an updated fishing report anytime you want just by calling one simple, easy-to-remember number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Patrick, good luck out there.
9: Hey, thanks so much. Always a pleasure talking to you.
0: It's 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
1: This month the amish community held the clearview school 26th annual quilt and consignment auction the event is a fundraiser for the school and an opportunity for folks from around the region and beyond to purchase handmade quilts and other handicrafts there is also food like homemade ice cream churned by a horse okay the horse has some help from the amish community member nelson detweiler and this radio chipstone in this edition of radio chipstone contributor Jennifer Fields also gets a little help from a fellow watcher of horse churning ice cream and auction attendee Lyle.
10: So this is uh, this is like an old old mower like an old sickle bar mower that's taken apart and built on this frame, and then the shaft is fastened to the ice cream maker, and then the horse turns the shaft, and then that will crank the ice cream. And then we just put the ice and the salt and water into the ice cream maker, and then that will make the ice cream.
11: So how long does this take to make? Uh, how much ice cream are you making, and how long does that take?
10: Uh, I think it's. I think we have a one gallon jug that's probably about three quarters full so about three-quarter gallon and uh I just and so it takes probably it takes about 20 minutes to a half an hour for one container one gallon
11: can i record you asking him some questions do you mind my name is Jennifer. no no that's fine okay what's your name lyle okay lyle you're grinning over here like a mule eating garlic <laughs> what questions do you have for ne- this is nelson nelson this is lyle, lyle this is nelson what questions do you have about what's going on here
5: what kind of gatherings do you use to get uh, or have to ha- use so much ice cream at once?
10: This this is the only place that we. This is the only time we use this ice cream freezer. Um, this is the only event of the year. Once a year, we get this out and we use it. Um, the other the other, if we have like community gatherings, we'll have a little a little or ice cream freezer and then that is battery operated but with with such a big event then we have we have we need a bigger ice cream freezer so this is this is how we do it and we've been doing this for a long time ever since we started having the school sale probably about 20 years
5: with all the kids running around at a family gathering, you ought to have a hand crank freezer. You shouldn't need
10: batteries. Yeah, but I guess it's, it's newer and it's better. So I guess we got to switch to that.
11: Lyle, horses don't cry when they get tired. <laughs> well,
5: the kids change off. Uh, where do you get the ingredients for the ice cream? We
10: we actually we we made we made it from scratch other years, but this year we have a new mix that you, we you can buy it at stores. It's it's a, it it comes in uh, little half quart or one quart containers, I guess. We we got this from down down south somewhere. I'm not sure. Mom mom came up with this, so yeah. If you
11: made it yourself, how much milk? Like how difficult is that process?
10: Uh, it's. It it takes it takes quite a bit, but I am not sure exactly. My mom my mom does all that, so she would know all that. I, I don't I don't do that. This so
11: Nelson, are you telling me that like she's the brains and you're the muscle of this whole operation? Yes, yes,
10: yes, pretty much. Yeah. What's the favorite flavor when you have a gathering? Uh, I we like maple, but usually we just use normal plain vanilla. And just vanilla is, is okay too.
11: Is this transformative for you? Does, when you do stuff like this, is it something that causes you some worry? Are you able to enjoy it?
10: I, I like it. I'm, I'm able to enjoy it. I mean, I, I really, I like it. So.
11: so does this ice cream taste better than the store-bought kind? And does your mom's recipe with your homegrown cows taste better than this stuff?
10: Oh, definitely. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> to me. To me, it does, I guess. Um, yeah
11: any more questions you don't have to have any No. thank you both so much thank you so much have a, so, then what, so then this batch should be done soon will you keep making it all day or then are you done all day all day we'll, we'll
10: we have three three cans and we'll keep switching them out once one's ready we'll get that out and put another one in and yeah we'll, we'll keep going all day
11: and how much do you think you'll make a total in a day
10: uh, we use make about eleven cans, which would be eleven gallons. I think. Um, I think that's a. I'm not even exactly sure what how how many. But I think that's. I'm not sure how much that is. so
11: It's a about, lot, Nelson, is what it is.
10: Yeah, yeah. About 11 of those. <laughs>
11: <laughs> Thank
10: well, you I'm so gonna much. Go and, I'm going to have to go get a bowl of ice cream just to see how it is now. <laughs> yeah. You you go get some and you tell, you tell me how it is. Yeah. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much.
11: For W O R T, I'm Jonathan Field.
10: And
1: that's a a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Emily Kaysinger and Mike Mowen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors D Star and Jonathan Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show, Nate Wiggyhout Nate produced this newscast, and Ms. Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton.
0: And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, if you missed any part of tonight's local news, you can listen to it again or subscribe to it on your favorite podcast app. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.